On episode 5 of Between the Sticks, we're delighted to have Ian McKinley here with us in the virtual studio. How are you, Ian? I'm good, guys. Thanks for having me. And you are... So, uh, based at the minute in Northern Ireland, so about 30 minutes north of, of Belfast. So, yeah, just saying beforehand, in, in the middle of uh, fields and next-door neighbours are cattle. So, it's, uh, it's yeah, it's good. Nice and quiet. Good to be back in Ireland. Yeah, it's definitely a bit colder. Um, you know, the two places there are a lot of similarities between uh, Italy and Ireland. So Italy, where I used to live, um, you know, in terms of people, there's you know, uh, the sort of we'll say the the banter levels is usually sort of similar, uh, but definitely culturally, in terms of sort of shops been open and food and weather and all that sort of stuff is definitely it's uh it's different so it's it's taken a little bit of time to get used to it but you know i suppose i had 20 years of experience of living in dublin beforehand so it's not as if you you don't know but uh no it's it's nice being close to to family and friends again probably skipping ahead a bit here, but were you in you in italy when when covid first when the pandemic first hit yeah, so funny enough, I think we, um, so I was playing with uh, Bennett and Chorizo at the time and we were the last game, I think, in the um, uh, in the URC now that is called the Dragons and then it was literally the next day when we got back, it was, everything was sort of shut down, well, provincially in Italy anyway, it was closed down and there was a bit of a surprise that that game went ahead, so we were... Um, based in Treviso, which is about 30 minutes from Venice, so right on the northeast of Italy, and the outbreak was in a town called Bergamo, which is close to Milan, so it's just about three hours west, so we're pretty close to all that happening, so it was a scary enough time, and all you heard was silence on the roads, apart from every literally five, ten minutes, which is ambulance sirens, so yeah, scary enough time. Um, if you wouldn't mind, would you mind giving a little backstory on yourself? Yes, yeah, so um, I suppose now now I sort of say it, didn't say it at the time, but um, I visually was a visually impaired uh, professional rugby player. So um, I was never born with a visual impairment. Unfortunately, my sort of life changed in 2010. So um, as a kid, I always wanted to sort of you know, play for Ireland, represent them, uh, represent Leinster, that was my province and you know was fortunate enough to do that at senior level and with Ireland at under 20s level you know in the Six Nations and World Cup and when I was uh, 20 in 2010 I was playing a game for my university and sort of my life turned upside down and um, unfortunately a teammate stood on my face and his his stud um, whatever way I was lying on my back um, his stud connected with the um, my left eye and uh, just burst my eyeball unfortunately and that left me with a visual impairment and I was initially told that maybe a year you needed to uh, stop doing any activity for about a year but I managed to get back um, in Leinster Colours in about six months and that was when Joe Schmidt started so I went from Michael Checker to Joe Schmidt so two fairly uh, well-known coaches um, and sort of things were going well and you know getting signing my professional contract with Leinster and then unfortunately my um, my retina detached uh, about a year and a half later 
and um, I made the decision, the excruciating decision at 21 to retire from rugby. Um, I then sort of was scratching my head as to what to do. And coaching was always sort of the thing that really interests me. So I moved over to Italy where I got a call to say, would you like to work with this team? And uh, I did that. Uh, but there was always sort of this burning desire, um, even at 23, to go, you know, you still could be playing rugby. You just have this problem where you're permanently blind in your left eye. Is there anything that can be done? So thankfully, I've got really, and this is very, very generalized now, but um, really, you know, good uh, network of people around me and rugby goggles became a thing in 2014 where there was never really any eye protection for players there was but it wasn't sort of deemed safe for everyone was sort of going through different companies so rugby goggles became available in 2014 and i picked up a pair and started playing in in italy and then i eventually became eligible for Italy and sort of climbed the ranks and played for my adopted nation in 2017. Um, so did that for a few years and last year I announced my second retirement aged 31. So still relatively young, but uh, that's sort of my <laughs> rugby career in a nutshell. Hey, going back a bit, Ian, was it always, was it always rugby or did you, did you play other sports? I always find the kind of the Gaelic football, the GAA stuff quite fascinating how how big it is, even as like a kind of amateur sport, I suppose. Did you, did you play other sports growing up? Yeah, I suppose for, for people who don't maybe know, you know, much about GAA here in Ireland, like it's absolutely bonkers to think the amount of dedication that guys and, uh, you know, male and female athletes do to, to partake in this sport when you don't really get paid. So, um, yeah, I would have played uh, Gaelic football growing up, um, played hockey did athletics actually sport was was compulsory in my school so even if you didn't like it um, you had to do it which i can imagine in the depths of winter if you're not really into sport is is pretty tough but um yeah i think it's 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 a good thing to try and do especially when you're young just to get a different understanding of how to you know how the body moves and maybe how you understand different dynamics of team sport individual sport and try and connect maybe all those dots so um but definitely for anyone that's never sort of seen Gaelic football um sort of similar to Aussie rules but it's a great platform springboard for anyone that wants to play rugby because it's got sort of all the skill set with a lot less impact and um you know definitely prepared me for for playing the sport of rugby but rugby rugby was my first love uh, that's always been <laughs> ever since I was in you know nappies basically that's all I've ever wanted to do I um, I actually I watched your Netflix documentary and you're from quite a sporting family aren't you yeah that must have been a, uh, a lovely night yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um no my family yeah my, my parents were um, were very talented so um my dad played to a really good standard and he would have, you know, back in the 60s and 70s would have, unfortunately didn't get capped for Ireland, but was certainly on the bench for provincial games and, and things like that and would have played at the, you know, really high club teams, which obviously club rugby is maybe slightly different in Ireland now. It's more provincial based, but back in the day you would have sold out a, you know, a stadium if you had two really high club teams going. So he was very good at that. And, um, mum I think sometimes gets a little bit irritated because everyone says you're following in the footsteps of your dad but she actually if, 
is probably a little more, uh, well, probably far more talented, I'd say, as a sports person uh, in terms of, you know, hand-eye coordination and all that sort of thing. So um, probably it's a good mix of, uh, of, of both of them. What's the, uh, what's the school set up like in Ireland? I know in, uh, well, for, for rugby union anyway, in Scotland and England, the kind of majority of top players usually go through the kind of private school system. Is that is that the same in Ireland or you know, do you, or do you have a good kind of mix of state schools and, and private school players? Yeah, it's it's pretty much predominantly private, but it's it's certainly changing. And sort of the, the decade that uh, I've been away, you, and when you come back, you definitely notice a difference in schools that necessarily weren't on the, the map or anything are starting to spring up. And I know, you know, a lot of those rural uh, schools are, you know, dominated by Gaelic. So it is a... It is a, a you know, a tough thing to get into, but there's uh, a lot more, you know, rugby in particular in Leinster is seen now outside, not just around Dublin, it's, you know, outside of Dublin, which is obviously important to try and make sure that everyone in, you know, the the province feels part of, feels part of that team. And so it's definitely changing, but still here in Ireland, I mean, the, the big schools are in Belfast, the big schools are in Cork, Limerick, uh, Galway, Dublin, the, the bigger ones are but it's definitely changing yeah Ian just jumping forward a wee bit um, to when you were talking about when you moved to to Italy um, when you finally were able to start playing back playing again was it your always your end goal to then be able to play for Italy or did that was that something that kind of came as you got back into the game and back into playing again yeah it's, it's a really good question that um, I think thanks <laughs> The first good question is asked. <laughs> <Was> it, <laughs> it, you didn't steal it off anyone, no? No, not at all. Not at all. Read <laughs> my notes, is it? <laughs> no, but it's 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 a, it's a fair question because obviously the residency rule is sort of you know one of the topics of rugby that is sort of hotly debated. So well, we the Scots thrive yeah. on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll listen. I won't go into that. Maybe just, <laughs> no, um, listen. As I said, growing up as a kid. You know, you'd have your Irish jersey. Your your dream and aspiration was to play in Lansdowne Road and all that sort of stuff. But my perspective changed just with the goggles because I wasn't actually, whenever I started playing with them, wasn't allowed to play in certain countries. And Italy, in fairness, were so supportive of me and what I was trying to do, and sort of opened up doors that the other unions wouldn't uh, wouldn't open for me. So my loyalties definitely. Um, I wouldn't say changed, but shifted, and you know I would definitely support Italian rugby and want them to do well. And like I sort of, I sort of put it that you know Ireland don't need my help. <laughs> you know, uh, I think they're doing okay with without my services. So um, you know, I I felt absolutely committed to Italy's cause, and whenever I put on the blue jersey, it's you know without a doubt the proudest rugby moment that I've ever I've ever had. Mm. How did you? How did you get on with the, the language in the, in the first instance? Yeah, it was tough. I mean, I moved over there when I was twenty-two, and I think I was lucky because where I went to was in a city called Udine, which is um, like way up north, close to the Slovenian border, and there are not many people that really speak English there. So it's your sort of sink or swim sort of moment. So. Um, for the first year, it was really difficult, like really hard. Even the basic sort of 
you know, commands or requests or anything and even go to supermarkets, shops, restaurants, you know, if you wanted to ask for different things, you can find yourselves in very awkward situations. And I was sort of left to um, sort of figure that all that out, which I was happy with. Um, and yeah, I will say alcohol at times did, uh, did help in terms of uh, my pronunciation and uh, the fluidness of uh, phrases. So... <laughs> I do remember the day it was about 14 months into living there and was at a bar that we were usually at on a Friday evening and I just started speaking Italian and my mates were going, hey, you've, you seem to have cracked it there. <laughs> you know, uh, whether I was actually saying the correct thing or not, but it seemed to be, in, in their opinion anyway, saying the right thing. So um, no, I was lucky that I didn't go to a place where many pe- people spoke English because I think if you did, you just... Me too. You're in difficult. Yeah, and, and but the thing is, you always remember the words that you know you'd you'd really struggle with, or you know. So um, yeah. And when you when you started playing again, obviously as a um, as a ten predominantly, you know your your game will be based a lot on communication. How did the how did you find that? Uh, just a lot of swearing. <laughs> <laughs> No, but there's, I mean, there is sort of, I mean, some, some coaches would talk about, you know, the rugby language and that sort of thing. And, and there is that sort of thing. And like the higher, it was actually a lot harder whenever, so when I started back playing in sort of what was City of, uh, City of Chi, so it was like the sort of the lowest uh, division, sort of here in Ireland, it would be the J4 sort of level. I don't know if that's the same terminology maybe in, in, in Scotland, but uh, that was a lot more difficult than it would have been actually to have played uh, international stuff or European rugby because you've got your sort of set moves and you've got people who know sort of what the, what the shape would be and that sort of thing. So you could almost pick a pass at time without looking, whereas at the lower levels, you, you never knew if you looked, if I looked to my left uh, on my blind spot, uh, I could have seen no one or I could have seen 10 people. It just, you never knew. <laughs> but, um but no, again, all, all that sort of stuff helped helped me because you were speaking with guys that you know they didn't didn't speak English and they sort of pick you up on on things and also you know tell you different words that didn't mean things, which uh, really uh, could have thrown things from time to time. <laughs> so just uh, moving on from that, and so if you could go into a bit more detail on how the actual opportunity came for you to restart playing, because obviously you went to Italy to coach predominantly. Um, what yep. was the kind of time frame from when you were able to start playing again um, and how did that come about? Yeah, so I'd retired um, so when I was talking about the, the deterioration of my eyesight uh, that actually happened the day after the Heineken Cup final in 2011 when uh, Leinster had the miracle comeback against Northampton um, so I would have retired you know, a, a few months after that uh, just before the start of the next season and for that year I worked um, just trying to gain experience as a coach and I went back to university and uh, even though I was meant to be there but I actually went back properly uh, <laughs> and that sort of thing um, and I moved over there in August 2012 uh, so I was 22 and I'd signed like a, a three-year contract with this club so you know i was fairly comfortable there for the next uh, few years and um, yeah as I said in 2014 then just picked up these goggles but sort of how how it came about was um, I literally had a 
you know, it broke down in front of my, my brother who came over to visit me uh, one day and that would have been in 2013. Um, just, yeah, I, I was, I don't even know why, but it was a particular game that Leinster played and it just set me off because it was all the people that I'd grown up playing with, playing against and, you know, it was only a couple of years that you were sort of rubbing shoulders with these great players and this great team and it just sort of really got me uh, got me down and down in the dumps and like I mean the way I tried to sort of cope was just work my ass off uh, every day so my missus was certainly not happy with me because you'd be gone uh, early morning and you'd be back late at night and our sort of senior training in Italy finished sometimes at 10 10 30 you know it was late didn't start till late um you know, because Italians usually finish, you know, the work is from, uh, it's broken up into two blocks. You go from maybe like half eight to half 12, and then you've got your siesta for three hours, and then from half three to half seven. So if you were to try and make training for seven o'clock, it just wouldn't happen. So, um, so that was sort of, you know, th- that was sort of the moment that my brother was like, you know, there's something, you're you're sad. Ultimately, you're, you're sad. I need to sort of help you. And we just uh, asked sort of the right people or got to know the right people, pushed the right buttons. If the button wasn't pressed, we pushed it again and just kept annoying people. And uh, thankfully, there just happened to be a manufacturing company in all places but Italy, uh, like in in Italy, in in a city called um, Bologna, which was about four hours from where I was living. So we were thinking that, you know, we're going to have to travel far and wide repeatedly or have to go to Tokyo you know you sort of get these things in your head but lo and behold just a quick car journey and uh, I was there at the manufacturing company so everything sort of seemed to have uh, fitted into place and then just started up playing again so it was yeah from when I retired to when I started playing again it was uh, three years. Do do the goggles or did they think about it getting used, used to? Absolutely yeah so I would have played I, I don't even know the exact amount of games, but I certainly would have been pushing, you know, 150. Um, and I can still tell you that I'm probably not used to them. Um, definitely things that you learned about them every time you played and in every stadium you played, it was always different because you had sort of the glare from the floodlights, you had the positioning of the sun uh, at particular grounds, you had windy conditions, you had the rain, you had... Uh, everything like that, all those sort of uh, different components that maybe some players might not necessarily have to deal with in terms of like the depth perception and all that sort of stuff. Um, you learn something every time. So Twickenham's floodlights are completely different to the Stadio Olimpico or, you know, a local city of Chi uh, stadium where there was the man and the dog. So, um, yeah, it, it was a constant... Uh, I don't want to use, I suppose I'll say battle, but you're always fighting, you know, I mean, you're always sort of fighting yourself and you're fighting teammates or the, the person that you're in competition with. My competition was, um, was always the goggles, you know, and that's not to say that I wasn't competing, obviously, with other people, but that was always my thing every day was trying to uh, see if you could conquer uh, the goggles. So it was, always, uh, it was always challenging, but if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have got back playing. How were your kind of like, how's like obviously just having the same one eye now? How are your peripheral, peripheral, how are your peripherals? Can you, have you kind of, did you notice a big difference when you went back to playing? 
Yeah, uh, massive. So when I first had my, uh, well, very first operation, so I had a few, but the, the very first one, I, a couple of days after the operation, because it was like, it was a pretty serious accident, you know, you've got your eyeball out of the socket and not exactly where it should be. And that takes a bit of time to, to get back into place. And um, I was, I think it was with my, my wife in the, in the hospital room and I just turned to pour some water to the you know glass just beside me and I don't even I don't know I couldn't even see properly or whatever but I, I just next thing I heard the water just going on the floor and I missed it honestly by about three feet like I was so far away it was just like whoa was what is happening here like this is just ridiculous because I normally my mates would say to me you know you're pretty good if you get a tennis ball or a cricket ball or you get you, you do something, you pick up a bat, you pick up a golf club, you'd be, you know, you'd be able to swing, you'd be able to connect well, or, you know, you're generally pretty good. So this was totally alien. It was sort of, you know, completely different to, to anything that I'd uh, experienced. So again, it was just a constant training and trying to maybe tell teammates that necessarily, if I look to my left, I might not necessarily see you. So make sure you talk to me. And if you're in a defensive line for, you know, rugby lovers, you know, you need your inside defender and sometimes I couldn't see that person. So you'd sometimes need a bit of trust or I had to change how I positioned my head or position my, the way I came up in defence or change kicking, change how I caught a ball. So all these different things took a lot of processes and a lot of time. And mm. yeah, I wouldn't say I mastered them, but uh, was able to play efficiently enough. So obviously the passion was still there, but was there any resentment on rugby? Um, da, 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 da. No, no, I didn't. I didn't. Probably resentment towards the person who uh, clumsily sort of stood on my my face and subsequently the eye. Um, I think the sort of the little bits of anger that maybe developed were um, wasn't at the sport. It was the fact that I and this is selfish. Uh, what I'm going to say, but. Is that I didn't obviously reach my potential, and I didn't, I didn't get to where I wanted to to get to. I didn't, I didn't achieve really anything. I felt, and it was sort of, you know, I came from a, a small school that hasn't necessarily produced a lot of uh, professional rugby players, not even you know international rugby players, and I had sort of wanted to prove a point and and you know show that even if he did come from a smaller rugby background. Uh, in that sense, even though my family, you know, was adored it, um, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't achieve that, didn't fulfil that. So I suppose the resentment would have come from that, but never from, never for the sport. And um, that's why, literally, like a few weeks later, straight into coaching, and um, I think it just adds, it can, it can add so much more value, and it has added so much value to my life rather than negativity. Would it be fair to say that it's sort of driven you more, or it's sort of empowered you more to? go out and not to leave rugby behind almost yeah um i think it's it's taught me that you need to be fairly um obviously you go, everyone goes through ups and downs in life everyone has their own story this just happens to be my one and you know i i know absolutely this is not the worst story you're ever going to hear but you know for me it it, it was and um you know my family took it very hard and you know um but I, I don't know. You just you, you definitely, I suppose, from 
things differently and a bit more of a positive mindset. And if you can sort of overcome this, then, you know, you can overcome a lot of things. And even, which might seem surprising, learning the language, like, um, you know, before, confident in my speaking people say to me you know you're pretty good and honestly if, if you know me and I've learned a language um, people would <laughs> wouldn't have believed you so that even things like that give you confidence uh, to be able to to be able to do that and sort of fend for yourself in a different language and, and that sort of thing um, so that as well as sort of coming back and all that sort of stuff definitely gives you gives you a boost but probably the, the biggest thing out of it that, that helps is People still write to you and say, you know, uh, you've helped my son, my daughter, or, you know, they've also got a visual impairment and with the goggles you've helped and that sort of thing. And that's sort of the, that was sort of the biggest uh, driving force uh, when sort of chips were down, you know, if you lost a game, last play of the game or whatnot, or if you missed a kick or whatever, you'd sort of always try and tap back to that sort of stuff. So that would have, that would have helped me. You were just moving on from that. So... You were talking about obviously you've you've gone through probably more um more than most in terms of professional rugby players um and they always talk about it coming at the end of their career they know it's a tough decision of their of their lives is is choosing to to finish their career was it tougher for you knowing you know everything that you'd gone through and all the battles that you'd had to get back into the professional game was that a, an even tougher decision um to then step away or was it the right time for you to to kind of stop playing yeah i think you know people will say you know they say to me all the time you know you're 31 but i'm 32 now but you know for for god's sake like you're young like get out and play um i'm like i'm at peace with with my decision and i wasn't at peace when i was 21 and i retired i was i was full of anger uh, and that anger was was brewing and getting uh, getting it was a snowball snowballing effect and you know my patience was growing less and less so I was becoming probably an unpleasant person to be around and that's not what what I am it's not who I wanted to be whereas now you know I think I'll, I use an example which um, so I know we're probably going to plug uh, my book which is going to be released but actually I think I use an example in it where um, previously if I was to watch a training session which I did uh, because Leinster were very good to me in terms of going back and helping with coaching and you know underage teams or with the academy and watching and that sort of thing I was filled with anger watching the whole thing I didn't you know it was there to learn but I really didn't enjoy the experience any sessions that I've gone to now and it's not necessarily I haven't been to a Leinster one but um, say Ulster for example that would be the closest provincial team to me here uh, and there's still you know there's obviously a generational thing you know there's younger guys but there's still some players there that I would know very well I'm watching them train there's just no anger whatsoever like so I'm, I'm would, would say that I'm completely healed which has been the greatest gift that my uh, if, if you're to find out a bit more about my story in particular my brother and my family have given me I think that's I, I don't hold resentment. I was able, and fortunate enough to experience the things that, unfortunately, the first time I wasn't um, able to. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> so you've got a book coming out on the 13th, Second Sight, Rugby and Redemption. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so, I mean, it is basically my, my life story, and uh, your roar's not happy, it's going <laughs> <laughs> You probably put hours into that question. <laughs> um, no, I think um, you, you don't have to follow rugby necessarily to follow this story, and it's got different elements to it. You know, it's got um, disability, ability, political, rugby, um, you know, res- resilience, all that sort of thing. Um, hopefully a few funny stories and, and that sort of thing. So I think a lot of people, especially with COVID, can maybe re- relate to it. And, and that's what we're sort of trying to cater towards, that it's it's you don't necessarily need to, to follow rugby to follow the story. But I think it, it's... It's good to share it, and you do realize that actually a lot of people have visual impairments in the world that I would have never really known about. But whenever you're sort of thrown into things uh, like this, you you find out a, a, an awful lot. So, no, I've done a sort of a, 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 a documentary slash film that's out on both Amazon Prime and Netflix, and I suppose in the the next thing uh, was to do a book. So. I'm sure my my friends are absolutely sick and tired of hearing uh, about the story, but um, again, that's yeah, that's that's coming out this week. I think on the the thirteenth, it's becoming available for for purchase. So just in time for the Christmas market, which yeah. I'm excited uh, to to say. So if 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 people want uh, to know more about the story, you know, they can pick pick up a pick up a copy. But it's uh, again, you you really. I remember I was at a premiere for uh, the opening, actually, of my my film, which is called Look Beyond. On uh, <laughs> <laughs> there, there's two plugs that I can get in, and and at the end, you know, you sort of have a Q and A or comments. And um, there was a woman that just stood up and said, "I know nothing about rugby, never seen it, uh, but I didn't need to know anything about rugby to watch this story because you know it's got different elements to it." Blah blah blah. So. That's what I'm sort of hoping that people will will, uh, will take from it. They see a bit of resilience. They see how important it is to have good people around you and sort of never giving up. So that's uh, hopefully people enjoy it. Yeah, so it is available to pre-order on Amazon when I was looking. And I just want to know if you wrote this quote, this intro yourself. <laughs> Rugby's long history is full of tales of inspirational courage. Yet there has never been a rugby player quite as remarkable, quite as jaw-droppingly brave as Ian McKinley. Is that your words? <laughs> I will leave that up to you. That <laughs> <laughs> or not. Um, you did speak previously and also in the intro of that book about a tenuous fight with World Rugby to allow you to play. How do you speak about that in the book more expansively? Oh yeah, there's yeah. a there's a chapter dedicated to um, to the campaigns and um, things like that. So. Oh, yeah, we'll. Um, I won't. I won't obviously give too much away, but um, it's. Uh, it was obviously a very important part. Whenever I started going back, that I wasn't allowed to play in, in some um, in some uh, countries, and that just happened to be Ireland, England, and, and France. So thankfully, after a lot of hard work, that uh, those decisions were were reversed, and uh, was able to to play, and more importantly, other people around the world who used the goggles or used it in those countries were were able to use them. What is in the future now? So, another book in the pipeline? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I think um, we'll we'll go easy on another book for the time being. Um, No, so at the minute, I'm just 
I mean, I'm um, coaching a lot as well, and I deal with, um, as I said, it's amazing the amount of visually impaired people that I've gotten to know and that write messages or people that know someone that's visually impaired. So do a lot of work with um, VI Rugby, which is, there's the uh, Change Foundation, which is based in, in London. Um, so we have started up in Ireland, a visually impaired team. We're in the very early stages of developing it in Italy. There's teams already developed before I came on board in New Zealand and England and Japan. Um, so the Change Foundation are doing unbelievable work. So I'm really happy to be part of that. Uh, mixed ability rugby here. There was just the Mixed Ability World Cup in Cork, uh, which is just incredible because it's, it's it's really interesting whenever you're you are in the professional bubble. Uh, you you really are in such a small percentage of what the rugby world is, I suppose, and it is wonderful to be in there. It's intense, uh, but it, it is very refreshing getting out and seeing uh, the other side, the other ninety nine percent of it, where people are there for the, you know, the, the participation and the enjoyment and all that sort of stuff. And I must admit, I'm really enjoying uh, being part of that uh, for the time being. So they would be just a few things that I, they would just be a few things that I'm, I'm up to at the moment. Uh, just touching on your uh, your coaching there um, is it amateur um, clubs or is it an amateur club that you're coaching just now yeah 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 so I'm sort of um, the way I'm sort of thinking about it is from coaching being like a player where you sort of <laughs> you have to earn your stripes so I, I actually didn't want to retire and then go straight into a professional environment so I wanted to sort of go back and maybe give a little bit to club rugby and sort of see lay of the land and try and grow maybe in different ways and um, maybe get a few grey hairs in the, in, in the meantime but uh, that's sort of the way I wanted to go about it I didn't want to just step straight into you know an academy role or something like that just uh, very happy just to earn my stripes and see where see where I go because I'm still 32 young and so I have a lot to, a lot to learn and is there any any uh, well, what are you enjoying about it first of all and then is there any challenges that you've they've kind of thrown at especially with going into like the amateur game is there any kind of things that you didn't expect no well I mean listen I've played amateur rugby played club rugby as well you know whenever you're young you know you know uh, and then when I started up again with the goggles you know you know what to expect you know I've, I've the utmost of respect for guys that talk out you know for trainings and uh, play the games and there's a lot of travel involved, especially we play in, in an All-Ireland competition. So we were, you know, in Galway two weeks ago and you have four and a half hour commute to, to to play a game. And, you know, if you're if you're working nine to five on top of that, uh, there'd be a lot of tradespeople around here where, where I live. And, you know, that's hard labour uh, on top of the training. So I have a huge amount of, uh, of respect. It's, 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 it's very different because you've so much uh, time and detailed time going through line outs, going through plays going through restart setups whenever you've got three hours in total on the pitch during the week with the club team it's and sometimes you guys that aren't there it, it it's, can be challenging uh, but no I enjoy it and, and I enjoy sort of the grassroots element of it um, it's 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 certainly a nice it's certainly a nice change of pace um, but obviously I like to progress uh, as I as I as I go on through my career but I'm very very happy for the for the time being the hardest thing is just you're not in control <laughs> whenever the whistle goes there's actually very little you can do 
Yeah. Do you ever get the urge to just stick that number ten jersey on and go on for the last ten minutes, change the game? Um, no. <laughs> well, I did, uh, no. If I'm to be honest, every day, honestly, like, I mean, I, I, you'll get pro players, ex-pro players that will say, you know, my body's had it, I'm done, and I'll always miss it. Like you ask me when I'm fifty, I will always miss it. I, I just know that maybe my circumstances are certainly different, and I. You know, got really. I got six really lucky years with uh, my goggles, and you know, managed to sort of climb the ladder to get up to international rugby, and just been able to experience that. Um, was obviously disappointed we didn't win more more games that I was involved in. Um, but you know, I'll always cherish first cap playing against Fiji, who were a couple of slots ahead of us in, in the world rankings, and that would have been a very important game for us. So, been able to to win your your first. Uh, you know, win your Italian game on your first cap, I think I'll, I'll always sort of treasure those sort of things. So, uh, but who knows? I mean, you never know in the future. Yeah. <laughs> like the the Undertaker when he left after thirteen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can't even remember what he said, but never, never. But I, I don't quite have the physique of the Undertaker. So, <laughs> well, if you ever do want to put the boots on, I'm sure my team will take you happily. Thank you. <laughs> well. Yeah, a half-blind goggle wearing out half is probably the best opposition, you know, the best proposition, but anyway, yeah. where you go with that. 